opening chapters of Isaiah are God's preparation for Christmas. You'll notice today that you're getting two sermons for the price of one. It's such a wonderful chapter and it raises such big issues and especially such spiritual issues for us in the first section that I thought it was important halfway through that we stop for prayer and so we're going to do that and then come to the second half after that. This is the background prophecy that lays the foundation and gives the expectation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah spoke of the judgment of God and the salvation of God's people, the remnant of his people. It's in the context of the rise of the Assyrian Empire at the end of a very long reign, 52 years. We've had a long reign with Queen Elizabeth II. Uzziah was one of the kings who lived a long time, 52 years he was reigning in Judah. But Isaiah warned of the coming destruction of God's people. The years of affluence and peace and security under Uzziah were coming to an end. Judgment was coming. Assyria was going to destroy. But yet, in the midst of judgment, God had not lost control. It was God's plan. And in the midst of judgment, God was going to rescue his people. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, if you would. And in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. For us, seeing is believing, or at least the saying goes so, but of course it's one of those sayings that's not even vaguely true. Uh, we all know of mirages in the desert or on the, the road in, driving around country New South Wales in summertime, you, you see things or water glimmering that's not there. We all know of the sleight of hand that deceives our eyes with the magician who moves faster than we can see or with the trick photography and the incredible computer enhancements today we actually don't know what we're seeing when we look and see things anymore. Some people very foolishly say if you showed me God if I could see him, I would believe in him. Uh, it's very foolish it's not true I'll give you two answers to that one if you turn up at the right time, in the right place, you could have seen Jesus. You could have seen God. It was in the first century in Judah and he was Jesus. You're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Secondly, 
If you did see him, you were there and saw him, you would do to him what everybody does to God, see him, would call out, crucify him, crucify him. For within the Bible, seeing God is a death sentence. For God is too holy to look upon sin, and sinners are too sinful to look at him in his holiness. This is the consistent teaching through the Bible. God said to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 33, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Gideon in Judges 6 knew this, and he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Manoah, Samson's father, said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. The reason why seeing God spells death is twofold. First and foremost is God's holy, righteous anger. God is not like us or like anything else or anybody else. God is holy. The word holy means different, separate, unique. That is the meaning of it. It's the opposite of the commonplace. There is nothing like God, full of glory, whose glory fills the earth. It is, he is so consecratedly different to anything that we are. And so when the seraphim, the angels, sing of God, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is he. He is not like anything else. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, the leaders and rulers of the world with their, their great parades, their great triumphs. You can see it with our own royal family at times like weddings and funerals. You can see the impressiveness of people in all their glory. That is as but nothing compared to the Lord of God, heaven and earth. When you see him in all his glory, you will be overwhelmed by the sight that you have in front of you. There is nothing like it, nothing to be compared with it. For really, the greatness of the greatest pageant you may ever see is as but nothing to seeing God in all his holiness. And the second reason for our death is our own sinfulness. For it prevents us from wanting to see God in, as he really is. And it prevents God from seeing, revealing himself for he will re reveal himself to us and punish us. For face to face with God, we cannot stand in his righteous purity, in his holy judgment. See, most people think that we don't see and believe in God because, well, he's a spirit and there's not enough evidence for him. But it's because we're sinful that we don't actually want to see him as he is, and because he is too holy, he will not reveal himself to us. The problem is not lack of evidence and lack of information, but our avoidance 
of the Holy and Righteous One who's going to call our every idle word into account. Have you ever been guilty of relationship breakdown? Have you ever done the wrong thing and offended people? It really fills you with anything but joy to meet them in the street, doesn't it? last person you want to see is the person you've just done the wrong thing to, especially if they know that you've done the wrong thing. And even more so if they know you've done the wrong thing and they're going to call you to account for it. That is the person you're going to avoid under all circumstances. God is the righteous and holy one whom we have deeply and profoundly offended. We don't want to see him and if we do he'll call us to account and we can't stand it the problem of why we can't stand God's presence is his holiness which will not tolerate sin and sinners like you and me Our sin means we don't want to see God. God's holiness means he doesn't want to see us. We have a relational problem here of a very great magnitude. The extraordinary thing about Isaiah 6, the passage I just read for you a few moments ago, the extraordinary thing is that Isaiah saw the Lord. And even more extraordinary, he lived to tell the story. He writes it down for us. Notice the moment when this happened. It simply wasn't 740 BC. It was the year that the great king Uzziah died, who'd reigned in this wealth and peace and power and fame. It was the the golden era of Judah when God seemed to bless them with everything they could want, every harvest. It looked as if nothing could go wrong. Here were God's people living in God's land, receiving God's blessings, living in peace and harmony and security. They had arrived. But in his success, he became proud. He became arrogant. He became faithless. Nothing was too much for King Uzziah. Why, he could even do the role of the priest and go into the temple and offer up the sacrifices himself, which God had strictly forbidden. And so he suffered the wrath of God, afflicted with leprosy for the last years of his life and reign. The co-regency actually ran the country in the last decade or so of his life. That was a symbol, that was a sign of what come. We mustn't let appearances fool us. Judah appeared to have every one of God's blessings with its wealth and security, but it was about to be visited by God's wrath. And the proud king, who had been visited by God's anger, was lying to leave a nation that would be destroyed. We Australians love that, that, uh, that phrase that was picked up by Donald Horne a long time ago and we misuse it, of course. We love to call ourselves the lucky country. And in some ways we are so much so, aren't we? 
We have health, we have wealth, we have prosperity like you wouldn't believe, we have justice, we have ease. Why, we almost won the cricket test the other week. I mean, nothing seems to go wrong in this country. It is just such an easy, lovely place to live and in wealth and prosperity comes arrogance and faithlessness so that you do not think you need God. But without him we wouldn't have any of the blessings that we have. That's why we start with our thanksgiving. That's why we need to always be praying to God with thanksgiving. But Judah was more than Australia. Judah was God's nation. Australia's not God's nation, but Judah was. And their blessings were the blessings that had been promised by God. There's no blessings in the scriptures as to what's going to happen to Australia, but there were to what was going to happen in Judah, and they had received these blessings, and in their faithlessness, they were going to be destroyed. The place where Isaiah saw all this was in the temple. Well, that's where Isaiah was. What he saw was the Lord who was in heaven on his throne, high and exalted. Why, his robe filled the temple. The temple was the biggest building going in Jerusalem. To have a robe fill the temple was to fill several football fields. I mean, it was a huge robe, but that's just the tip of his robe. So great and majestic is God. Here in the place where God in his wrath had struck down Uzziah with leprosy, here was the place where Isaiah saw God and faced the wrath of God as one who had seen him. For the sight of God was terrifying. See, it's interesting. If we were there, we would have taken a photograph. That's what we would have done, whipped out our telephones, taken a photograph, if you've got that kind of telephone. Why they call it a telephone anymore defeats me. But we'd whip it out, we'd photograph God. Then we'd say, have you seen my photographs? You've got a baby photograph? I've got a God photograph. That Mine's bigger and better than yours. And so when he sees God, we'd say, well, what did you see, Isaiah? But what he saw is so tantalizingly described He saw the throne, he saw the angels, he saw the robe, he saw the smoke. But what did he see? His description conveys the might of God, the power of God, the sovereign authority of God, the holiness of God, but his description was not such that you could make a statue of God. The visual, physical appearances of God and the details so fascinate us really unimportant about God. What is important about God is what Isaiah saw, what the angels called out. It was the king, the Lord of hosts, on his throne, in his holiness, in his glorious holiness. The kind of holiness, the kind of distinctiveness that should make any and every man fear, especially a sinful one. I mean, just look back across to chapter 5, verse 16. 5, verse 16. That's just back the previous page. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Here is God, the Holy One, 
the just one, the righteous one. And so the response of Isaiah is response. Verse 5 of chapter 1. Woe is me. I am lost. Why? I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Why does he see himself this way? Well, look at the end of that verse 5. Because my eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the King. When you see God in his holiness, the last thing you'll be thinking of is where's my telephone to take a a photograph? That is not what you'll be thinking of. Face to face with the Almighty God in his holy righteousness, you'll say, I am such a wretched sinner. I am of so little consequence. I am of such nothingness except my woeful sinfulness. Isaiah was thunderstruck, lost, ruined. The word is, I've been silenced. Dumbfounded is a good English word for it. I was, he's dumbfounded because his lips were too sinful to sing the praises of God. A sinfulness, an uncleanness that he shared with all the people around about. When you come face to face with God, there is this overwhelming sense of sinfulness and his righteousness, and therefore the righteousness of the sentence of death. We see people die today And we think it's unfair. We even talk about people being innocent. Why should the innocent die? There are no innocent. They may be more innocent than you, but that's a nothing, frankly, given who you are. It's not very much to say, oh, you haven't sinned as much as Philip Jensen. That's an easy thing to do, I would have thought. I mean, it's like comparing Katoomba and Kosciuszko as both being one closer than the other to the moon. Yes, one is closer to the moon than the other, but does it matter? The difference between them is but nothing compared to the distance that we're talking about. When you see God in his holiness, you'll say it is right that all humans should die. You see, Peter, he caught a glimpse of Jesus' divinity when they were out fishing and there was the great miracle catch of fish. And we read in Luke chapter, uh, in Luke chapter 5, When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It is not what most of us, certainly not what the non-Bible readers would ever expect. You'd expect, gee, Jesus, you're a great fisherman. How did you do that? Can I count the fish? I mean, there's a hundred questions we'd say, or wow, you're very powerful. But no, when you come face to face with God, you'll say, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I shouldn't have said the things that I said, as Job says at the end of his book. Or when Jesus, when John, the apostle, was caught up into heaven and he saw the Son of Man in glory, we read at the end of Revelation chapter 1, when I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. For there is a remedy to our sinfulness and God's holiness. This conflict that means we cannot know God and know him personally, there is a remedy to this broken relationship between God and humanity. For Isaiah, the remedy was in the coal carried from the altar fire and touching his lips, his unclean and defiled lips. For it is in the sacrifice for sin that forgiveness and mercy is discovered, the sacrifice that God accepts. For from the altar came cleansing, came atonement, his guilt taken away, his sin atoned for, as he describes it there at the end of verse 7. For there is no forgiveness without payment. Cover up does not actually deal with sin. That doesn't deal with it. Payment for sin. at a cost. It's from the altar where the animals' lives were forfeited and where guilt and sin were dealt with by death. But that was then. That was Isaiah. What about us? For God is still holy and righteous in judgment. His glory still fills the whole earth even if we cannot see it. And we are still sinful and under his wrath. We are still men and women of unclean lips and we certainly live in a country of foul speech. What about us? Where do we find forgiveness? How can our guilt be taken away and our sin atoned for? Our altar is not in the temple in Jerusalem. Nor is it in this building. There is no altar in this building to the confusion of the tourists who come time by time. But there never has been an altar in St Andrew's Cathedral and may God there never be one. Our sacrifice is not an animal sacrifice, not a goat or a sheep, a bird or a calf. For our altar is in heaven and our sacrifice is nothing but the Lord Jesus Christ himself who by his death has paid for our death, who by his sacrifice has made atonement for our sins, who by his cross has won the forgiveness for all who trust in him and his sacrifice for them. That is why when John saw him, he made the right response, the response of an Isaiah. He fell down as if dead. Woe is me, I'm lost. But look at those wonderful words that are there that our Lord Jesus Christ said as he reached down and touched him, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys 
of death and Hades. My friends, it is to the Lord Jesus Christ that we must turn to find this forgiveness that Isaiah speaks of. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities are laid waste without an inhabitant and houses without people and the land is desolate waste. The Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burnt again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is filled. The holy seed in its stump. His lips were cleansed and so the task was given to him in proclaiming the words of God. But oh, what a strange task it was. For it was proclaiming God's word can be a strange thing. It was to bring people not into the light, but to confirm them in darkness. It was not to bring people to salvation. It was not to rescue the unclean people, just the reverse. It was to harden the hard hearts, to blind the unseeing eyes and to deafen the closed ears. He was a prophet of doom, not of salvation. He was to confirm people in their condemnation. That's not the hope of most preachers. It's not how to actually get recruits into preaching. I've got a job for you. I want you to go around the countryside and so confirm people in their rejection of God that the condemnation will be seen to be right and just. And so he asks the very obvious question, how long, O oh Lord? How long am I going to go around doing this? How long before this all happens? How long, O oh Lord? And he's told of the devastation that is coming upon the nation. He is to preach and to preach and to preach until the land lies desolate waste. And it happened in his lifetime, of course. For some 30 years after this, the Assyrians came down and destroyed all the villages, all the cities, all the towns of the northern kingdom of Israel, took away the tribes of Israel into captivity. The lost tribes of Israel were lost to the Assyrians then. And all the towns and the villages of Judah were also destroyed and Jerusalem alone was remaining. But that's another story. He is to preach until it all is destroyed. There's no respite, there's no relief. The sinfulness of the people knows no end and the righteous condemnation knows no end. But rather is to be confirmed in Isaiah's preaching. And if one-tenth remains, chop it down as well. This is more than decimation. Decimation is when you kill one-tenth. This is when there's only one-tenth left. But even that's not good enough. Everything goes. Poor Isaiah. What a message to bring to the people. 
What an activity to preach in order to confirm people in their sinful rebellion and rejection of God. But right at the end, that very last line, if you look at it there with me, we read of a hope in the future. For out of the dead and lifeless stump, God will bring new life. The holy seed is in the stump. A couple of years ago, I came across a dead and rotting stump in New Zealand and was reminded of it when I saw it of Isaiah 6 and I couldn't resist photographing the new shoot that was coming out of the dead stump. For it is out of the seemingly dead and destroyed stump that the holy seed will be found. That out of the stump of this chopped down will come the promised saviour, will come the seed of the woman Eve, will come the offspring of Abraham, will become the son of David, come the saviour of the world. Out of the destruction and condemnation of this nation will come the great act of God in the salvation of the world. Out of the cross will come the resurrection. The hope for mankind is not in the nation Israel. It's not in the nation Judah. It's not in the Jews but it's in the one man who will come from that nation will endure the destructive judgment of God and in enduring the destructive judgment of God will bring forgiveness and atonement and new life and salvation, eternal salvation, not just for the people of Israel but for all mankind. As I said when I started the previous sermon, Isaiah is God's preparation for Christmas. Here is the great news. As he wrote a couple of chapters later, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness, on them the light has shone because unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, unto us. That's the great Christmas passage of Isaiah 9 that's coming to us, you see. But it comes in the darkness. Without the darkness you do not appreciate the light. It's out of the judgment of God that you find the joy of the salvation of God. And when you lose that darkness and therefore lose that light, then your Christmas is about sinners. Then your Christmas will be about presents and trinkets and puddings and pies and seeing fam. Your Christmas will be about anything and everything but nothing in particular. And it'll just be a strain on your budget and your time and your relationships. It's when you know the darkness of the condemnation of God and see the wonder of him sending the Saviour that you can't help but sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the... Then those words make sense. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child's born, and the kingdom will be upon his shoulder. And so when we turned over to the New Testament, we find that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus constantly are being explained in terms of Isaiah. In Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, each of them tells the parable of the sower, if you remember that parable. And each one of them, Jesus is explaining why people are rejecting him. 
And he explains it in terms of Isaiah chapter 6. For these are the people whose ears are heavy and eyes are blind. These are the ones who cannot understand. The reason Jesus speaks in parables is not so as to help people understand. It's so as to fulfill Isaiah. It's the exact reverse of what people think. Because they haven't read Isaiah, they don't understand Jesus. Because they don't understand Jesus, they don't come to salvation. I'm so glad you're with us this day, friends. For the task of preaching is not always bringing salvation. It is sometimes confirming people in condemnation. Or even more striking is the passage we just read. Come with me back to it in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, page 1084. 1084. Just turn it up, please. 1084. John chapter 12. For we read there in verse 36, the second half of verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him. Show me God and I'll believe in him. Rubbish. God came and did all these wonderful signs and they still did not believe in him. Why? Well, it's because of Isaiah. Look at verse 36. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. It was the plan of God that the Lord Jesus Christ would be rejected when he came, would be rejected by his own people when he came, that the Jews would turn against him when he came. That was the plan of God, predicted by Isaiah, Hundreds and hundreds of years, eight, 740 years before Jesus came, God said, they will reject. But hang on. Hang on to your hats. Look at the next verse, the one beyond where we read. Verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw whose glory? Well, Isaiah saw the Lord. But if you look at John chapter 12 carefully, he's saying Jesus. He saw Yahweh, but what he saw was the Lord Jesus Christ, none other than the Son of God himself in all his glory. Isaiah saw in the glory of God that most glorious of all moments when God the Son would pay the price for all mankind. Isaiah said it because he saw what was going to happen. God would be rejected by Judah. That it was always God's plan. If you think verse 41 means that effectively Jesus is called God, you're right. Might try it next time the Jehovah's Witnesses come around. But this is why we find Jesus rejected throughout his life on earth from the no room in the inn to Herod killing little boys of Bethlehem, from old Simeon prophesying the pain of the mother, his mother to the Pharisees and the Herodians plotting to kill him, from Satan tempting him in the wilderness to the crowds calling out, crucify him, crucify him. The events of Jesus' birth and life and death were all going to be the hardening of the hearts of a sinful nation 
that would bring condemnation upon this one innocent man so that through his death all may be saved. For out of the stump comes the hope of the nations. The very last scene we have of the Apostle Paul was when he was in Rome in house arrest in Acts 28, awaiting trial and presumably the loss of life. And the Jewish leaders came to his house and he sought to persuade them all day of the truth of the gospel. And some were persuaded and others disbelieved. And Paul explains this in terms of Isaiah 6. Paul says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah 6. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation, says Paul, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the nations and they will listen. God's plan from the 8th century BC was to send his son to a nation that was condemned to destruction. His son would be the last one of that nation so condemned because out of he and he only would come the salvation not just of that nation but of all nations for all time. And so we're called now to use our cleansed lips to serve the living God by proclaiming the message of salvation. Ours is an easier task than Isaiah's, friends. We're to preach salvation to the nations. Sometimes, of course, this means we've got to mention the judgment and condemnation that happens when you do not turn back, but it's always salvation that comes out of condemnation. It's God in Christ Jesus taking the judgment upon himself that men and women, boys and girls, old people, young people, rich people, poor people of any tribe, of any nation may come to know God and the forgiveness that he has won for us. Now for all nations, commencing with the Jews to the ends of the earth. And for saved, that others may hear of our Saviour so this Christmas, you see, we rejoice that out of the stump of Judah came our Saviour. We rejoice that out of the death of our Lord came our salvation. And we rejoice and proclaim to all who will listen that the Holy God can be seen in all his glory in the coming of our Saviour to die for our forgiveness. Thank you.